Bobby Williamson is an iconic Kilmarnock figure. His goals played a key part in Kilmarnock's return to the top flight of Scottish football in 1993. And there is the managerial career of distinction. In episode 21 of Killy Histories, Bobby looks back at the many highs and occasional lows of 12 years in Ayrshire as player, coach and manager. I'm Gordon Gillen and this is Bobby Williamson. Why do you think Mavis Riley picked you in his all-time Kelly eleven? I've not got any clue at all, honestly. Um, it's a great honour because we had a lot of good strikers uh, that Mavis played with. And uh, why he selected me, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm an ex-coach, ex-manager, ex-mate of his, actually. Because he was a great guy. Uh, it was me, I actually gave him my nickname, Mavis, for the trick he was in Coronation Street, Mavis Riley. And uh, it seemed to have stuck. <laughs> He's still getting called it, called it now. Hope he forgives me. In terms of your playing style or what you might be like for teammates, are you going to be too modest to say it was probably because of this? I don't know. I was very much a team player. Uh, I was quite robust. Uh, I liked the physical aspect of the game. I always made sure that I gave defenders a hard time. They gave me a hard time as well, don't get me wrong. But um, And I, I think the fans appreciated see, seeing me playing like that. As I said, I used to chase lost causes and uh, try and make bad balls good balls and and whatever, and uh, as I said, I was very much a team player, I didn't mind tracking back, putting tackles in to, to help the cause. I think my teammates must have appreciated that. Uh, my biggest problem was my first touch, because my second touch was always a tackle, and uh, as I said, I never, never developed that side of my game, but um, I scored goals. I was not as prolific uh, with Kamala as, uh, as I was down south with Rotherham. But uh, I did score goals. I scored a few important ones uh, for the club, especially against uh, United. It was always great to score against them. Oh, I used to compete against everybody. Uh, the bigger the game, obviously, the better. United games, loved being involved in them. As a player, as a coach, it was difficult. It was harder to shoulder because you're taking the whole responsibility. As a player, you've done your best, scored goals. I think I missed a penalty against them once. But um, I scored a few goals against United and uh, we came out top as a player more than I did as a manager. We lost a couple of cup ties there. I do believe both games should never have been played anyway, but the conditions were terrible. But it's history and it was good luck to them on that, on that day, but bad luck for us. It was very disappointing because that was my, well, my first uh, journey into the, the Scottish Cup and uh, we never lost a game and uh, obviously won the final. To get knocked out in the first round with the United was a huge blow, a big disappointment. As I said, uh, we dusted ourselves down, gone with it, and had a, had a reasonable good season. Very much so. And Bobby, we'll talk about 1997 as much or as little as you want, because I know that there must be an element of oh, 1997 again, or maybe there's not. Maybe it's, oh, I love talking about 1997 all the time, but as we come to it, you can let me know. Uh, it's, not a big, it's not a big problem. I, I don't mind talking about talking about it, to be honest, but I think we'll cover no ground, and I think everybody's heard uh, my opinion. And yep. How I felt on the day and the whole shebang and uh, all the players as well documented what a great day it was yeah. for Mallet. So talking about that style of player that you've kind of described yourself as being, what do you think defenders thought when they saw they were up against Bobby Williamson? I don't think they enjoyed it. I really don't. I think they thought, oh, here we go again. There's a boy at Rafe Rovers I used to love kicking lumps out of a guy called Jock McStay. And it wasn't two years later 
we went to coaching courses together and I found out this, this guy's a great good lad and we used to drink together and uh, socialise and uh, and he asked me the question and he goes why is it every time I played against you you always try to kick me and I said well when I was playing with Rangers was a boy called Billy Mackay and he got a seriously bad injury and he had to retire actually he got a bad injury against Motherwell and I wasn't at the game I wasn't playing the reserves that night <laughs> funnily enough I got told that Jock was responsible for the, the tackle that injured him. And when I told him that, he says, no, it wasn't me, it was a goalkeeper. So I had to apologise for all the times I kicked him all over the park. <laughs> it, was, it was quite a funny moment, but it was too late. <laughs> game, my careers were over. In Scotland, I, did, I definitely had a black book. There was players who kicked me. I knew that I'd have plenty of opportunity to get a, get a kick back at them. And uh, I was always sent off. Every year, there was always a sending off where I went over the suspension. But, but in England, that never happened because if somebody hit you, you had to wait a long, long time till the game came around. You only played twice. And you had to wait a long time. And by the time that, that game comes around, the guy may be suspended, he may be injured, they may have moved on. So those vendettas never come into the game. But they definitely are in Scotland. Because uh, your teammates wouldn't let you forget. If somebody, somebody give you a kick, they would remind you the day of the game if you if the guy's playing. Remember he done you, and you would. <laughs> it was never forgotten. And uh, everybody I kicked, I'm pretty sure they never forgot about it either. And um, they got a comeuppance occasionally, and uh, sometimes I came off a loser. That was just football back then. Nowadays, the game has changed. Uh, people can conduct themselves the way we used to. And uh, I think that element in the game is missing. I think the fans really like that passion and that aggression. The biggest road you got in a football match was a tackle, not a goal. If somebody tackles somebody and uh, the fans see that, they'd be a huge, huge noise. The, the game nowadays, as you said, has totally changed. I get fed up watching English football with this new rule that you can play the ball in the 18-yard box. Now, when I was playing, when I was managing, I always thought, get the ball as far forward as you can, create chances and try and score goals. But nowadays, I can they're content with just passing the ball along the back Back, forward, back, forward, back to the goalkeeper. He'll kick out to a full-back. And it really annoys me. Chelsea the other night, I switched the TV over. I said to myself, if that centre-half passes that ball with that centre-half again, I'm turning it over. And he did. So I just turned the TV over. The game finished 0-0 against Brighton. And I thought, I'm glad I never watched the whole lot of that game. Because honestly, I spoke to Clarkey, my old assistant, and he's the same. He's, he, we just cannot understand why coaches are doing this. I think fans want to see the ball in the opposition style. They want to see nice passing, people overlapping, crosses into the box. But what we're seeing now is the ball being passed along the back line and going back to goalkeepers. And I'm, I'm finding it extremely boring. I don't know if everybody else is the same, mate. When I was uh, coaching commander, I used to say, the ball went to the right back, to the left back, and then went back to the right back. It goes forward. Because what defenders are forgetting is, when they're passing the ball along the back, strikers are moving with the ball. So they're getting tired and they're leaving to touch the ball because they're running across the park back and forth. And I said to the defenders, the ball comes back to you, you go forward. Their players know the ball's definitely coming forward then. I'm watching teams, they don't put people on goalposts, they don't make a goal smaller. I see so many goals being scored just, just beside the goalpost. And if there were players there, there wouldn't be a goal. Maybe I'm old school and that's why I'm finished with football. But uh, as I said, I would, I would change that back. I would put people on goalposts as, as they used to do and save many goal-scoring opportunities from the opposition. Talking of the tackles, you won a few, you put a few on, you, you lost out a couple of times. Who would be the teammate, and I'm assuming you would be the teammate otherwise, but who would be the teammate that would have your back? Who's the one that's running straight in there to say, 
what are you doing? I never really got involved with that. And I used to say to our players as well, if a tackle harms and a guy who could tackle their player is not too happy and he wants to keep percussions, he wants to jump out and fight, nobody join in. Nobody join in. Let him deal with it if that's what he wants to do. But uh, nobody join in because when you see those players all running and throwing punches and stuff, it's hard for referees to manage that. And I said to, I've said to our guys, look, don't get involved. If somebody wants to take action or have repercussions, that's up to him as an individual. And uh, we'll deal with his fate later, whether he's in hospital or whether he gets sent off, whatever. But um, I, I try I not to get into those kind of situations. As for having my back, I don't know. I really don't know. I think we had a lot of players who, who enjoyed playing with me. Uh, I was very forthright in uh, my opinions and during the game, after the game. I never had a problem shouting to someone if I felt they could have done better. Mostly to try and encourage them, but sometimes they, they took it the wrong way and uh, took about a half and maybe a couple of days before they speak to me again. But that's football and uh, it's your profession. And that's, that's what managers need. They need players who can organise themselves and uh, they can sort out problems on the pitch. And I was very forced. I had lots of players who actually went on to manage, like Holte, Gus McPherson, Big McGowan, Riley, Durant, McCoys. These guys were all winners. They all wanted to do well. Uh, Ali Mitchell, he led by example. He wasn't much a talker. And if he did talk, we couldn't understand him anyway. But he was, he was a great all-round player. Scored so many, so many goals for us. And when I look back at the cup final team, I think, why was Ali not in that team? And uh, I remember Burke and Beggy had come in, and they'd done very well. And then I converted Ali into a midfield player central, and they covered every blade of grass. But we had a lot of good midfield players at the time. Riley and Gary Holt played the cup final. They two were the midfield balance, and they were great together. Uh, I wouldn't like to have played against them. You wouldn't have got a minute on the ball. Holt or Riley would have been pressurising them, getting tackles in. And they were fantastic. Then Duran came in, and uh, things just moved forward from there. I think Duran had taught them a lot. Just be watching Johnny play football. He never, he never panicked. He always took a touch and uh, had a look around him. Was well aware. Gary Holt and Mark Riley adapted that into their game as well. They started taking touches, being more composed, producing passes, and just said Johnny done very, very well for us. It's not something I was going to specifically ask you, but as you've mentioned it about Ali Mitchell, you'd have been in a bit of a rock and a hard place though, because Burke and Began were playing so well. You drop one of them and it doesn't work out. Why did you drop them? A tricky spot for you, but a good situation to have so many players, so many options at that point. It was always difficult, especially when cup finals coming out, because it's not just the players, their whole family's there. Their grandmother, their granddad, their sisters, brothers, wives, children. And it's difficult, difficult to leave players out of the team, but that team kind of picked itself at that moment. The guys that found themselves in the bench, like John Henry, Tam Brown, Mally Mitchell, I don't think they had any more than that. I think they only had three. But I made sure they all get game time they all finished up on the park at the end of the game but the biggest problem I had was uh, the League Cup final against Celtic I had to leave out Paul Wright and Martin Baker and guys who, who thought they were going to be playing and uh, their families thought they were going to be playing and uh, I never dealt with that too well usually I would have told them the night before the game but those two individuals I know but I told them the night before the game they had a song off home so I left it to the last possible minute and that was in his restroom, which was not great. And uh, it was a huge hammer blow for those two guys, but all right, especially, because Paul had been such a magnificent striker for his scored in very important goals. It was a decision between him and McCoy's. But Durant was on the park at the time and I thought, 
if I can bring Coisley on, they've got a good telepathy between those two. They know when to make runs and when to receive a pass and whatever. And that's why he got the edge over all right. Unfortunately, Durante got injured that game. He was running the game and uh, he had to come off at half-time. So that, that kind of curtailed McCoy's chance to get on the part. That's for Martin Baker. It was between him and Gary Hay. And I think I made the right decision bringing in young Gary because he would already become a legend. And uh, he was there his whole career. And uh, he is a legend for Kamala. Martin Baker, I didn't think of the, the desire, the passion for football. It looked like it was a chore for Martin. He was a good football player, don't get me wrong. But everything seemed hard for him, even in training. He didn't really want to work as hard as he could have done. And uh, that was quite easy, picking uh, Gary before Martin, although Martin never took it as well as you'd expect at times, but that's the way football is. You've got to take that weight on your shoulders if you want to be a manager and a coach. It's, it's the way you deal with players, and I always felt that I was, I was pretty fair. And I, I used to say, guys, if you get in the team and you're doing well, you'll stay in the team. If you don't, if your form dips or you get injured and you're out, you might find it a long time before you get back in. And I used to have this argument with directors. They say, why are you not playing this one? Why are you playing that one? I would say, because the guy played well last week. I bet this one's a better player than that one. Because I know that. But if all my best players are sitting in the stand, we've been very successful. Because that means we're winning football matches. And the guys know that their conduct is measured on the park as well. If they get they pick up bootings, they're going to end up, end up out of the team. And it may take them a while to get back in. And that's, that's, that's the way I used to always do it. But I used to get criticised, fans would criticise it as well because they see good players sitting in the sand, they want them on the park. But I want the team to win. I want to be loyal to the players who have done well the previous week. And uh, that's the way I've always done it. I don't think it would ever have changed that. Even if my best player was in the sand, so be it. He found himself in the sand for whatever reason, I do not know, or I can't remember whatever it was. But hypothetically, if they find themselves in the stand, they've just got to be patient, work hard, and hopefully get a break again and then stay in the team. For you, what was the better time for you at Kilmarnock, player or manager? Well, it's going to be a coach. Uh, it's going to be the manager, yeah. We had a fantastic five, six years. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed my playing, playing time at Kilmarnock as well. But being the coach and the manager was uh, a fantastic experience, a great honour and a privilege. I tried my best and I let the fans and directors down every week. More so than uh, not, we, we never really let them down that much. Sure, there was uh, the odd bad result. I remember we lost the League Cup uh, to Alloa away. That was hard to take because Alloa never had a shot at a goal in two matches. We had the bar, the post, everything. And I didn't play Durant in the return match, which was, was a major mistake. I just didn't think it can, the conditions would be conducive to a style of play. It was a very heavy, sandy part when uh, Durant had been playing a lot of football. He never missed a game, really, until I put him on the bench that night. And uh, he wasn't happy about it. In hindsight, I should have played the guy. I think the players knew it was honest and uh, fair. If they got a game, they played well, they stayed in the team. And very seldom I left anybody out of the team who'd been playing well. I think they appreciated that. To be fair, I spoke my mind. It didn't matter who it was, whether it was Koisty, Durante, or any of the players, Monty even. If I felt they weren't doing the job or they weren't playing to their capabilities, I'd let them know at half-time and uh, you always got a ration out of Holy. Always. I remember one a United game. It was a uh, National Cup at Rugby Park and uh, Holy, he didn't like himself in the first half and uh, they gave him a blast at half-time. And I can see him welling up, I can see his eyes getting glazed over and uh, And they went out in the second half and it was magnificent. Chased everything. 
as he used to do, but he never done the first half. When they turned the game, I think even Dylan Kerr managed to score a goal that match. Just get the reaction out of players, I think, is uh, the strength that I had. And uh, I managed to do that on numerous occasions. But um, when I first took over, it was it was a, diff- it was a difficult time because Ali could left and I was put in charge. And we played on day and night on a Saturday. It was, uh, it was a gloomy day, as usual. Very well overcast and dark and miserable. And the fans, uh, they didn't know what to expect. Neither did I, to be honest. We lost the game. We lost the game quite heavily, actually. We were all beaten. And I remember going into Monday and I said to the players, look, it's not about me. A new coach is going to come in. It's about you guys. You want to stay in this league? You need to play better. You need to do better. And that's when I introduced Berkey and Began because they had that enthusiasm. It rubbed off in senior players who probably had lost it for a while. And uh, as I said, they took him in and lifted it, lifted the place and uh, lifted the fans as well. And we got in that roller coaster ride and uh, kept winning football matches, winning football matches until we, we gave ourselves a chance in the last game against Aberdeen. We, we got the result that kept us in the league that propelled us forward to the cup final. I remember coming to that game against Aberdeen, my first time at Rugby Park, and thinking, come on, it's quite a big deal. Well, you'd be well placed to describe, I think, the transition of the club from 1990 into the kind of the late 90s. What was the club that you were joining in 1990? They were part-time, uh, which I never really realised. I, I came from Rotherham, which was full-time. Uh, come on, I paid a lot of money for me back then. And uh, Jim and Bobby Fleet were there. I don't think they get the recognition that they should get. Because Jim Fleeton brought me, brought Tommy Barnes, brought a lot of experienced players to the club. And as I said, it was part-time. And uh, that really knocked the stuffing out of me because when you're part-time, you only train twice, three times a week. But when you do train, you train. Um, it's really hard running and fitness and stamina stuff. And uh, a little bit of ball work occasionally. But it was hard work for me coming from full-time to that. As I said, Jim Fleen done fantastically well. And uh, unfortunately for him, uh, the board removed him and put Tommy in. Which turned out a good move for, for Kamala, but I'm not sure it wouldn't have been a good move if they left Jim, Jim in charge. He may have been able to produce as well. And unfortunately, he never got that opportunity. But Tommy came in, took his chance, and uh, we managed to, to climb, uh, climb out of that division and stabilise the Premiership. We were always battling against relegation. Even when Alec came in, there was still a struggle down the bottom in the league. Unfortunately, fortunately for me, just at that time, it was uh, the Bosman era. I could manage to bring in a lot of talented players. Sky had invested a lot of money, so we managed to get players like Christoph Kokar, who was fantastic, Gerani McCoy's who lift his up at that level. And uh, we were always in the top six, uh, fighting for a place in Europe. And I think that's what the fans wanted. Well, they'd been missing for a long, long year. About 30, 40 years. I think they appreciated that. But as I said, uh, the more you get, the more fans want. Europe wasn't enough. When they get knocked out of Europe, they were very disgruntled at times, and I could understand that. So was I. Because uh, on a few occasions, we, we weren't as bad as the uh, opposition. Perfect Kaiser out, and we, we lost to them quite heavily, but they had a lot of talented players. Georgiev and Marshall, and top German players. and we also lost to uh, Sigma Olimish, who, who were a decent team back then, compared to us, who were bigger and stronger, athletic, and uh, as I said, we learned a lot of lessons. We, we managed to hold our own in the Premier Premier League, which was the main aim. The media would always make us favourites, because they never knew the opposition. I, mean, I remember playing Vikings to Vanga, and we were bread-caught favourites, according to the media. 
and I try to play that down because it builds up the fans' expectations. And then when you lose, they're very, very disappointed because they believe the press that we were better than that. And we weren't. These, these teams were very, very good and very capable. I, I would watch them and I would come back and say to the players, we're going to have a tough, ga- tough game here. But the press are telling everybody, oh, they're rubbish, they're not good, they've not got a name player. And uh, Vikings, the bag had a striker, it, it played with my United for a brief spell. And he was a good striker, he scored a goal against us and uh, over there, and uh, they eliminated us. And their fans kicked off. I remember it was just one stand, the dugouts were over the other side or the benches. And I remember walking over after the game and uh, I'm clapping the fans and they're giving me the fingers, they're booing, they're telling me to go and do one and all sorts. And I thought, nothing else I can do, I've got to keep popping. <laughs> and I'm thinking, before the game, they thought, this is fantastic, we're in Europe, blah, blah, blah. You lose the game and then it all goes pear shape. And I remember going to the airport and the cops were at the bottom waiting for us and they said, you can't go up. I said, there's a problem. It says, your fans are kicking off. Up in the bar, they're off the and the glasses getting thrown, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not hiding down here, we're going up. So we went up. And the bar was like a, you know, like a greenhouse right in the middle of the, the airport. All our fans are in there. And I walked in and their noses all over the place, there's blood everywhere. I was like, what's going on? You should be here to enjoy yourself. Drink, enjoy the occasion. Why are you fighting each other? Oh, why did you do this? Why did you do that? So I explained everything. By the time I'd finished, they were, they were happy with the explanations and understood the situation we were in. Then they were offering like in their like, drink. So I departed <laughs> as quickly as I could. But that's what I'm saying. The press, they kind of bump teams up too much and ignorance on their part. They don't know their opposition. And uh, as I said, that's why we were favourites. And, and that's why the fans get so upset when you don't win those games. It's a lot of money and it's a lot of a time wasting in their part because they're travelling yep. and missing work and whatever. So I totally understand where yep. they come from. But it was actually my memory then when they were telling me to do this and get to and all that stuff. I thought, when opportunity comes up, I, I really do have to move because they're, they're getting fed up with me. And uh, I don't want to be putting up with this abuse because uh, it was unnecessary. But it sticks in your mind and I said, I thought, first time I get an opportunity and it's decent for me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a move. But apart from that, I loved it. I loved it at Kamalik. I love the club. I still get a warm welcome with the fans because uh, they, f- they forgot about the Vikings starting again. <laughs> you set a very high bar. Do you think it is... Can it be dangerous to set expect- to raise expectations? Mm. I think that's why you're in the game, is to be successful. If, if the bar gets raised... That's great. It means you're being successful. Uh, we managed to get to cup finals, semi-finals, and compete at the top end of the league. Give Rangers and Celtic games. Uh, whereas prior, I felt as soon as Rangers and Celtic turned up, it was uh, a lost cause. But we changed that mentality. The fans came expecting expecting to get results. And uh, we managed to do that. Especially with Rangers at Ibrox and uh, Celtic at Rugby Park. When it was the other way around, Rangers come, come to Rugby Park, it was always difficult for whatever reason, I don't know. When we got to Parkhead, it was always a difficult venue for us. We, we struggled badly there and uh, had some heavy defeats. But at Rugby Park, we could always manage to get a result against Celtic and uh, we couldn't manage to get one against Rangers. But we could at Ibrox, I don't know, it must be a mentality thing. I, I, I just couldn't put my finger on it. We enjoyed playing against Old Firm. The bigger the club, the bigger the occasion, the fans would turn up in good numbers and good voice. And... Uh, we, we gave as good as we got, as we got. 
you talk about in individual games giving the old firm a good match, but that would have been 1999. <clears throat> you were actually threatening that cartel that they've got. Second at Christmas, yeah. things going very well. But is there a ceiling for a provincial club in Scotland, do you think? Is there is there only so far a provincial club can actually go? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Because if you if you bring good players to your club, then they're going to move on. Bigger clubs will see them, and you can't stand in their way. We lost Jim McIntyre to Reading or somewhere up, but we got some money for him. And that's just the nature of football. And it's difficult for provincial clubs to keep their top players. You've got to keep reinventing, keep bringing that, those kids through. And uh, Alan Robertson and, his, and the guys at that level have done a great job in bringing players through. The unfortunate thing is, when you're bringing young kids through, you've got to let older ones go. Like Gus McPherson and Pierre Canero coming through. And uh, I let Gus go to let Pierre develop. I probably let Gus go a couple of years too early because I went in Dunfermline and did very well. Yeah, but you need to have those uh, mature players around so the, the younger players can learn from. And I always made sure that if I was bringing in a mature player, he was going to add something to his off the park and on the training pitch as well as on the, on the park. That's why Durant and McCoy's were invaluable to us because the players learn that they guys were winners and professionals. OK, they like to laugh the same as everybody else. And they were great in the dressing room, but that's not the reason I brought them. The reason I brought them was because we're good football players. And I knew that players could learn from these guys. Pat Nevin was another one I brought in. And players learned from him. Unfortunately, when Pat came, working at Beagie suffered. One of the two of them was always left out to accommodate Pat. OK, so the interview's going quite well. Time to ask. Following a free transfer trialist match, French striker David Murdy joined the club. Within a year he was gone without appearing in a single league match. I had to ask. Some you win, some you don't. That, uh, David, he was a decent enough player, but he wasn't good enough for Scottish football. I don't think he learned the language either. So, no, as I said, it was, you don't spend a lot of money in these Bosman players. You do give them a decent wage, but you're not paying a transfer fee. And uh, as I said, Freddie didn't really. Some you win, some you lose. Christoph Coker, he costs a fortune to be fair, but he was a good player. But Christoph was only interested in the big games. The Rangers, the Celtics, the Arsabs, Aberdeen even. And he scored, he managed to score goals against all these clubs, but the teams down the bottom end of the league, he wasn't so interested in playing against them, never mind actually going and scoring goals. But he was a great, he was a great player and a good professional. A very rich boy at the time anyway. I think Mark Riley uh, collided with him, broke his nose, that's what it was, in his second training session. He just walked off the training park and got ready, jumped in his car and went. And never knew where he went, but he went back to France and got his nose fixed and came back when he was ready to come back. But strange. Did you think he was going to come back? I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I'd be on the phone to his agent on a daily basis. What's happening to this guy? Where is he? And they said, he's back. He's, he's getting his nose reshaped. And he'll be back when he's ready. And I said, OK. So we waited. And uh, he did come back. But that was, it was, his, it was his second training session or something like that. The problem I had was competing with the Hibs and the Hearts and teams like that, even Aberdeen and United, were paying more than we could afford. And I remember uh, trying to sign a few Hibs players. Mr. Telly, for instance, uh, Little John O'Neill and, and guys like that. But they opted to go to Hibs, Capital Club, better money. And then when I actually moved to Hibs, I was told I had to get rid of these guys because we had no money. <laughs> the Sky money had fallen out, so... I was still missing out again and starting from scratch and developing young players and getting them through to the first team, which I, I thought was very successful, but 
Chris fans will differ. But um, it can matter, sure. I, th- I always found that the best times to take Bosman players in was pre-season. We would take these guys and tour with us if we were training in France or Germany. They come in for us with a week or ten days or whatever. And then they get to know the players, you get to know them. But when the Bosman really started at first, it was mid-season. We were bringing players in on trial. They weren't even good enough. And they just go back to the hotel, don't know what they're doing, you don't know how they're settling or whatever. But during pre-season, that's the best time. We got Freddie Dindley that way. You can see right away Freddie was settling in. Apart from the language barrier, he was settling in. The players liked him. They thought he was a good player, blah, blah, blah. But during the season, it was much difficult. And uh, we signed up a few players that we probably shouldn't have done if, we, if you're giving longer to assess them. But you're not giving that time. You've got to make a decision like that after a week. Oh, you move on to another club. Jerome Varai was another one. Uh, he was he was training at United at the time when his agent phoned me. He said, I've got a boy here, he's a striker, decent. I says, what's he doing? He goes, he's training at United. I goes, well, they've obviously got first bite at him. And he goes, oh, they like him, they want him, but we want him to be playing in the higher league. I says, well, I'm in France at the moment, send him back. You can trade with us and uh, we'll see how we like each other. And Jerome came in, fitted in very, very well. I thought he was going to be a goal machine. Unfortunately, he never scored as many goals as we both would have liked. But he created a lot, a lot of opportunities. He was a strong lad, decent pace, good right foot, good left foot. Not great in the air. But I thought Jerome was quite successful for us. But that's because we've got time to analyse him and work with him and, and make a decision uh, rather than just bring them in for trial or for a week in uh, Rugby Park. That was difficult. If I had to ask you, Bobby, if there was a player, whether it be a transfer that came in or a player that was in the squad already, who under your management maybe surprised you a little bit with the level he reached? Just talking about the performances, is there somebody where you think, we got great value there, or he's really kicked on? I must admit, Monty. Monty stepped up to the plate. Monty wasn't the best football player. If he played right back, he was bringing fans into the game by putting the ball in there quite a lot. But his heart was big. He showed strength and character, and players responded to that. He wasn't very verbal. He wouldn't shout players about or organise as well as he could. But he had that desire for Kermanak, and uh, he really, really impressed me. Unfortunately, his time was coming, coming to an end as well. I tried to bring him into the coaching staff, but it would be on a part-time basis, working the evenings with kids, and uh, money wasn't for that. He still felt he had a bit left in him, and he, he went to party for some. Uh, which opened the door for Freddie Dindle to come in, really. And uh, Freddie did an amazing season his first year. He won all the Player of the Year awards. And I remember Monty presenting him on award, and he said, well, he did have a hard act to follow. He's had a good season. <laughs> but, uh, no, Monty, Monty was fantastic for, for Kamala. Still is. He's a big part of the history, and he's there. He greets the fans, and uh, he's well-respected. And he was well-respected in my eyes. And these are the difficult jobs that you're going to do and is replace legends and letting legends move on and uh, that was a hard hard one as well you could maybe have kept Monty on but if I kept Monty on I couldn't bring Freddie in and you're always trying to look at the bigger picture who's going to be there longer who's going to who's going to be the player that you need and uh, as I said you make these decisions Gus went on and Monty moved on and uh, these are the hard decisions that you've got to make as a coach I was just honest with all the players and uh they all have their, their opinions. I know some of them hated me. I don't blame them at times when I think back. 
Nothing, no, just like nothing. People would have thought so, but Coyce never, Durante never. They were good professionals, were good about the dressing room, good on the park, good off the park, very respectful towards me, who, mm. who was a teammate. It was a teammate of their guys. But as soon as they came in, there was gaffer this, gaffer that, and uh, I admired them for that. But um, I would rather work with a player who's got that bit of devilment and there's uh, a bit naughty, but can play. He's got the ability. I'd rather work with that than work with a good pro who never had the ability, but never done anything wrong. I'd rather work with somebody there's something wrong occasionally, but could produce the goods. I was always prepared for that with those two, but there was nothing. I can't even recall one incident where they stepped over the bar. They never. They were they were so professional. And as I said, they took to the players, the players took to them. They love command up, they can bring their kids around the place, there's none of that sectarian nonsense that goes on. And uh, it was a breath of fresh air for the, for those two guys. When I left McCoy's on the bench against Rangers, I get lots of abuse for not play, playing them. But we were losing the game 3 0. We've got about maybe 500 Commander fans over in the corner, are not very happy. And there's maybe 50,000 Rangers fans wanting to see McCoy's on the park. I had to think about the 500 Commander fans rather than the 50,000 Rangers fans. And I remember Dick Advocate saying after the game, I should have put them on. And I goes, That's good coming from him who released them. He's my player. I, I, I turned around to my coach and I told him, I said, Oh, I can't put you on it. Because I've got to think of your fans when not the Rangers fans. The, the Rangers fans started out with the last time they was seeing him playing at Ibrox. He played many games after that, but not at a level, you know, charity matches, whatever, mm-hmm. testimonials. But as I said, I had to think about Commander fans and be professional. And I know a lot of Rangers fans to this day have not forgiven me for not putting Ali on. But uh, as I said, I can only apologise about that, but. It was a difficult decision, a really difficult decision. It hurt me as much as it hurt Coyste. If Rangers fans hadn't won them on, I would have put them on, but that's just the way it is. We managers, we've got to be stubborn at times and think of our own fans rather than the oppositions. Do you think that your success as a manager has overshadowed your success as a player with the club? Oh, by far. I was an average player, to be honest. When I look back in hindsight, I got my opportunity to climb bank. I came on as a sub for Mark Trainer as a right back, and uh, I done quite well. I was bombing up and joining in with the attacking side. Of it. Defensively, I had a lot to learn, but I enjoyed it, and I played an extra game because Mark was still injured, and I done well again. And then Mark got back at it. Mark was a he was a right back, a very good one, and uh, I went back to the bench and uh, put up, put on up front, scored goals. And uh, because of chase things, I ran the defenders down and I scored enough goals. I wasn't a prolific finisher, but I scored 20-odd goals for Kobe Bank and whatever with the Rangers. I believe I could have done a good job there because I, I did like a tackle and uh, I did know how to defend. I'd watch a line and whatever. Could get forward and create. But I never, I just decided to stay up front. And as I said, I scored over 170 goals or something like that. A few penalties, don't get me wrong. But... Um, uh, I did have a reasonable career as a striker, but I think I could have been up far better right back. I really do. But uh, as I said, that's that's all yesterday. I'm gone. That first season at Kilmarnock, you scored 14 in 23. So you came in, I think, in the um, oh no, would it have been the January possibly? But certainly halfway through I the season. Think, I think it was. I'd already scored eight goals for uh, Rodrum. And at that time, I was scoring 20, 20 goals a season. So I still scored 20 goals a season, but for two different clubs. 
as I said, I, I settled in quite well with Kamala. We had good players. Tommy Burns uh, was exceptional. And uh, we had Tommy Black at left back and uh, a lot of, a lot of decent players. We said Proteus was in was there as well. And uh, yeah, we Jim Jim Flynn put put together a good bunch of guys. And unfortunately Jim, as I said, never never got the recognition they deserved and uh, never got the opportunity to take all the way, but sister Tommy came in and done what he did. This might seem like a silly question because, as you say, 20-goal-a-season striker, but when Jim Fleeting brought you in, was he bringing you in to score goals or was he looking for that combative side? What do you think he was looking for? I, I think it was to score goals, yeah. I think it was to score goals. Um, you don't bring strikers in for any other reason, really. Yeah. And uh, there was more to my game than scoring goals. I, I created a lot of opportunities for players as well. I worked hard. That uh, was the first line in defence, really. I remember when Tommy took over, he kind of played with one striker. And if it was me, it was difficult. I remember a game at Ray Frovers, uh, we played, and uh, they played with a sweeper. I think Ronnie Coyle was sweeping for them. I can't remember the centre half's name. It was very difficult for a one striker to, to find space in those situations because I went long, the sweeper was there. If I went short, the centre half was there. And I had to go in front of the centre half to receive the ball and do what I had to do and link up and stuff like that. But I remember Tommy came out at half time, I think we were losing 2 0. And Tommy came in and he, he blew a gasket. It was all for me to say bit of mouth kind of stuff. And uh, he's shooting at the players, he goes, Look, if he comes short, do not give him the ball pointing to me. He goes, You can't play. So I thought, I can't play. He goes, Okay. So I took my boots off and I threw him down. I said, I can't play, put somebody on the can play. No, I'm right in the shower room and take my stuff off. And Starkey comes in. He goes, come on, you never meant it that way. I goes, <laughs> he just said I couldn't play. I was raging. Because I was, I was arguing back with him where I thought, I'm not having this. And uh, Starkey convinced me to get my gear back on. So I ended up scoring the equaliser. And I came in after the game and told me, obviously, he's, he's happy that we got a result. So I went in to see him on a Monday knocked on his door and uh, he goes, I'm respecting you. I goes, you should be. I goes, I thought that was a disgrace what you said about me. He goes, like, you took it the wrong way. I never meant you can't play. And he tried to reword that stuff, but he did. <laughs> so I told you earlier, my first touch was a, my second touch was a tackle. And uh, that was the case. It wasn't the best, I wasn't the best that liked get up, but I had my qualities. And uh, as I said, when Tommy took over, I was played up front, mostly on Mullen. I'll be chasing everything and working, working, working. And I remember going to Tommy's testimonial dinner and uh, I think it was managing, I must have been managing then. And I went to Tommy's testimonial and uh, he's making me speech and he's thought me. He was Bobby Williamson, great player, great player for Kamala. Done the work of two men and it looks like he had the other man. <laughs> 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 Which was hilarious. And, and Tommy was that kind of guy. He, he was great to work for. He would give everything you put your heart in your sleeve because that's what he did and you worked as hard as you could for him and, and every player was the same there's so much respect for the guy and uh, he's a sad loss he's still missed every time I was angry I was, I was absolutely fuming and he was angry as well I thought I'm not, I'm not going to confront him I can't do that not in the dressing room not with other players but it was embarrassing for me as well with the way he described it and as I said I, I took a hump and uh, I threw the Toys at the pram and whatnot. But as I said, Sarkey was always a good cop. And he came mm-hmm. in and said, Come on, he didn't mean it that way. Let's go out there and play it, show what you can do it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, 
we've managed to get back in the game and uh, we, we got a point out of that game. It wasn't something I dwelt on. As I said, I, I still had a decent career for Cabernet. I remember that season, I think we got promoted that season and uh, my contract was up. And then Tommy says, uh, I don't think we can afford to keep you. So that summer I was looking, looking for a club and uh, nothing came. I went back to Kilmarnock and uh, nothing happened. I scored a winner against Rangers. I was offered a contract, same money. I just signed it. I never looked back after that. I think I had a decent season that season in the, in the Premier League. I was so close to, to leaving the club. Thankfully, I never materialised. We, we were given a chance. Uh, we were expected to come up and go back down again, going to Ibrox. And uh, the, the fantastic thing about Ibrox at that time was Kilmarnock had the whole bottom end. The whole bottom end was full, totally full. And that's where the winner. And uh, they showed you on TV. The camera was in the stand. And my cousin was right in front of you. And he's got his son. And when I scored the winner, he turns around and faced the camera and gives it, gives it that. And it was on TV. <laughs> and uh, he was a big Celtic fan, to be fair. <laughs> so he, he was quite happy. And I think I made a lot of Kermanic fans happy that day. Because nobody gives a gives a chance. Uh, but we did, we did very well on the, on the day. Rangers probably could have played better. But that's always the case when you manage to get a result against an old-firm old team that they could always do better. And you go to catch them in an off day and and play exceedingly well and be strong and whatnot. This is McPherson. Played almost four minutes of injury time. And it's Presley under pressure here now. Presley losing it to Brown. The two substitute combining. Ibrooks, um, I think, I don't know if we beat them 2-1 or when they were, Mitchell scored a winner. And I remember mm-hmm. when Kevin McGowan and John Henry and Ali Mitchell went off the bench. It's only about 10 minutes to go, I think. It was level. Their defence had been playing well. Monty was at the back with Jim Walkman, done very, very well to control the game at the back. So I'm thinking, where can I put Kevin? And I threw him on up, I threw him on up front. I don't know how Kevin found himself in a wide area. But he found himself out there and he swings this ball and Ali Mitchell get, got the goal. I thought, it was not a bad substitution. <laughs> John Henry, Kevin and him, and they all contributed in that ball. And uh, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. But like, uh, I, did, I, I couldn't imagine him getting out in the wide area. I wanted him in the box because the trouble with Goffey and then as it happened, he crossed the ball and Ali scored a goal. As I said, he was a big player. He's great foot, left foot. If he got anywhere near the goal, he was going to have a shot. If there was an opening for a shot, and uh, nine times out of ten, he would hit the target. And mostly, most of the times, he scored goals. As I said, it's something when you look back, you realise how important he was to the team. 
he was great in the dressing room. Everybody used to take a back out. But he'd give as good as he got. He was uh, from Bolingre or someplace yeah. in Fife. He was like a strong little guy. If he wasn't a football player, he'd have been a minor or something. Yeah. He was fantastic for Kamala, a true legend. This idea of making the transition from player to manager. I, I listened to or read an interview with you where you talked about already been going through the coaching badges and Bobby Fleeting said, look, you won't be in long term. Turns out you were. When you were doing those coaching badges, was it being the uh, first team manager that was the goal or was it to be involved in coaching more generally? To be honest, Gordon, um, I was coming to the end of my career and uh, I didn't realise I was going to stay in the game as long as I did. But I was thinking, what, what else can I do? I'm not trained to do anything else. She so started thinking about a policeman, fireman, gambling, blah, 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 all, all those kind of jobs. And I was like, I don't know if I answered up. So I remember me and Gus McPherson uh, used to go to Armden every Thursday for a B license. And we done that when we finished that summer. We got the certificate, which enabled us to go for the A intro that summer. And then at Largs, which I'd done, and we invited back for the, the A advanced the following year. So I've done that as well, managed to get that qualification also. So I was quite fortunate that I managed to do it all in a year and a half. Some players were very nervous about it. I was never nervous about it because I could talk in front of players. Some players were a bit hesitant, a bit nervous, and they found the coaching side of the game very difficult. And I remember saying to some players, let's go for a beer. Oh, I've got to work on this for tomorrow. I was, what's there to work on? You know it. You know what? You don't have nothing to work on. If you don't know it, <laughs> you're not going to learn it tonight. Other people speak to the coaches. You learn more from coaches in the pub than you do out in a training park. You'd listen to the experiences, how they dealt with situations, blah, blah, blah. And I would do that every night because the next day I knew. I knew what I was going to be doing and I'd done it. And I managed to get the, get the licences. And I actually went back as a coach educator as well. But back then, I never realised I was going to be a coach. It was uh, like talking that came in and Alec like, invited me over to his house with the assistant manager to have a look at the squad and how we might progress blah 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 I mean I looked at the squad I noticed my name wasn't there I looked at the strikers and my name wasn't there so that was Alex where he phases me out he said I want you to concentrate on coaching reserves in the youth I said okay he goes I still want you to play in the reserves and it was if I play in the reserves and I play well we got a chance to get in the game the first time he goes no 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 just the reserves I says, well, I'd rather not play. I'd rather you play a younger player who's got an opportunity to get into the first team. I thought it'd be easier standing at the side and telling players what to do than do on the park. Because if I make a mistake, who can I criticise somebody else for making a mistake? So I took myself out of that. But I was quite happy just working away with Alec and Kenny. And then, unfortunately, Alec and Kenny lost their jobs and I was pushed into it. But I, thought, I never volunteered, but I never declined the opportunity because I thought, this is it. What else can I do? A new manager was going to come in. I could be out anyway. So um, I went into it and uh, brought in Jerry and Jim Clark. Jerry McCabe and Jim Clark. And they were fantastic. KB, KB was great in the dressing room. Players loved them. Good humour. Training situations. He was good. He was always like playing five or six. Clark, he was far more serious, far more organised. And it was a good balance. I've always tried to work with two assistants because if you just work with one and you're disagreeing all the time and and you, do, you make your decision and, and ignore his. With the two, you can always talk behind your back and say, he's wrong, blah, 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 you should have done this or done that. But if it's just one, he's on his own. But with two, you're disagreeing with two people then at times. But a lot of times, they got their way. And I said, yeah, you're right, you should do this. 
then we had a good balance and uh, worked really well for us. Unfortunately, I broke it up and we went to Plymouth. I never brought Clarkie down and that was probably the biggest mistake I ever made in my coaching career was uh, leaving Jim Clark up from uh, Scotland. I thought, I thought the travelling would have been too much for Jim. Jim had a, an aneurysm a few years back and he was epileptic at times. I think he got through all that eventually, but I just felt the travelling went in Plymouth a long, long way away from anywhere. The three years before you even hit Bristol and then you're still got another three years before you get to the Midlands. I thought the travelling wouldn't be suitable for him and uh, left him back in school. But it was a major mistake. Uh, I should have brought Jimmy along. Did you always have in mind Jerry and Jim at Kilmarnock as being the, the team? How did that come the about? The thing is, I actually approached Jim Stewart, the goalkeeping coach at the time. And he says, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an assistant. He goes, I'm a goalkeeping coach. And he goes, well, I recommend Jim Clark. He recommended Clarkie. I never knew Clarkie. He was, uh, what was he doing at the time? He was coaching kids in the area yep. under the SFA, but I can't remember which title was. I brought him in. And I says, what do you think? And he goes, nah, not sure. And he goes, don't know what's going to be happening with you, whether you're going to keep the job or whatever. Got a steady job here. And, uh, uh, so he declined. So I'd, I'd phone KB anyway. I said, if you want to come and help me, and he goes, sir, I've just signed that contract for sales and juniors. KB was in his 40s, I think. I said, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, I've just signed that signed contract. And he goes, well, rip it up. You can't even coach a Premiership team, a Premier League team. And he goes, ah, I can't, I can't let him do it. You're letting yourself down if you don't do that. And you're letting me down, I need your help. So he said, but I've already took the side on fee money. He goes, give him it back. And he goes, I've spent it, but I've got radiators for the house. <laughs> so this conversation is going on. And I've sat around the phone and said, my head, I can't believe this guy. He's refusing to come to the So eventually I talk him around and I says, look, the man will give you the money to give it back to Shelves and you come away and you come and help me and we'll see how things go. So he get and then a couple of days later, Clarkie comes in and he's covered in water, he's soaked to his skin, he's got a big bag of balls over his shoulder, he comes in my door, puts the balls down, he says, is that job offer still open? I says, of course it is. He goes, that's good, I'm not chucked this lot. <laughs> he goes, I'll come on board, uh, we'll see how it goes. It all went great, the players had utmost respect for both of them. After, after they got to know him, they done, done uh, superbly well. I got all the credit, but without those two, I could never achieve anything, nothing. I always let them know that. They were fantastic. What would have been the first thing when you came in as manager? You thought, I think I'm going to change that. That's the thing that might start making a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say to Alec, uh, before he could push out the door, we've got a couple of young players playing on this team who could come into the first team, and I think they'll do well. Colin McKee and Ali Mitchell were playing the ideas, and they weren't reaching the heights they were capable of. And I thought, if I bring them out and put these kids in, then they will rejuvenate those two who's been left out. And Bucky and Bagley played ever so well. For a lot of games, they played ever so well. Created so many chances, scored a few goals. I remember uh, Bucky turning out that Anoni, I think it was, the Celtic uh, defender. The boy was, uh, he was playing as uh, a third centre-half, but he kept being drawn out wide for Bucky, and Bucky would put the ball past him and go. So that was, a, that was the biggest major decision I made break from a kick-off, that was the catalyst. Was bringing those two kids in and leaving Ali and uh, Colin McKee out. Of course, Ali battled on and got back in and it was always part of the plans. Unfortunately, Colin never had the same mentality at that time and uh, he never managed to get back in because Bucky and Bagan had done it or so well. But that was, that was definitely a, a key point 
probably the biggest point when I first got was bringing those two. So 1996-97, I think it was a feat to, to stay up in that situation, even taking the cup went out of it. What was the difference between 1996-97 and 1997-98? Because in a quick turnaround, not very many players brought in. It's fourth place. Uh, no, I think the, the players started believing in themselves. I think when Ali, Ali was in charge, the players, they'd lost their confidence. Once your confidence goes, your ability goes. And once your confidence goes, your work rate drops as well. Because you don't want to go on the ball because, you know, I'm not, I'm not playing well. The players weren't wanting the ball, but we got a lot of belief for that run we had in the league. We, I think we beat Rangers and Celtic the, the run up to the end of the season. We managed to win the Scottish Cup. And we took it on the next season. We, we just kept playing at a good level. Uh, the, the players loved the training. As I said, Kevin Clark, he came in. They loved the environment. I'm not saying they never loved it when Alec was there, but something obviously went, wasn't right. As I said, I just felt some of the senior players weren't doing it as well as they, they could have done. And uh, brought in younger players. And it inspired the younger players as well, because they see Bucky and Bay get an opportunity. I played loads of young players in that team. Loads of young players, Alan Kerr, a lot of young players who never actually got there. Kerzo was unlucky, he picked up a lot of injuries. He was a fantastic player when he was fit and available, but unfortunately he picked up so many injuries. Mark Roberts was coming through. Mark had already had the opportunities, but he was he was getting there. He was, he was stabilising. There were so many young players, and I think the young players... It was inspiring for them to see these guys get an opportunity and they knew if they worked out, they would get an opportunity. I had to release players, young players, when they got to an age where they had to get a contract. And these were players I actually worked with when we were 13, 14. Both used to be sitting there crying and I used to say, look, I can't offer you a contract. There goes, there's too many players in front of you. And plus, I'm not sure you'll get an opportunity here, but... I recommend you to other clubs and I uh, wish you well and blah, blah, blah. And both used to be cried because I know I've known them since we were kids. We've seen them developing, but they just couldn't make that final step because there was players in front of them. And it was for their best interest to move on and get a club and do really well or whatever. So I said, it was very, very difficult doing that. But I used to say to all the young players, look, don't mess about in training. Give me 100% week in, week out, in training, in games. And if you're good enough, you'll get an opportunity. If you're not good enough, I'll recommend you to clubs at the end of the season. But if you mess around, I can't recommend you. So give us everything you've got. And they did. They did. And they recommended many young players to other clubs. I'm not sure many went on to have great careers, but um, a lot of them did get opportunities. And uh, I was always happy to bring in young players. I had no, no doubt about throwing them in. It's a situation where you sink or swim. We're getting to ages 18, 19. Players were playing the first teams at 16. I was playing the first team at 17 at Clyde Bank. And uh, as I said, I had no hesitation of putting them in. If they'd done well, that was great. It means I've got an experienced player sitting in the sand, as I said earlier, waiting for his opportunity to come along again. That's the reason why I believe Kamala was successful over that over that period. Because other players knew if they were doing the business, they would get an opportunity. They respected that, and uh, I respected them for respect for that. The people were fantastic, still are. I've got great friends down that way. Every time I go back, I'll go down to Kamala. I'm not sure I want to go back into the bowling club because they never stop singing my name for about half an hour. But um, it's great. It really, it really was an enjoyable time in my career. What a pleasure to spend an hour in the company of Bobby Williamson. 
As both a striker in the mid-90s glory years and manager as Killy enjoyed several years of success, Bobby's role in the club's re-emergence was huge. This episode was recorded in the summer of 2021, with Bobby joining me via video call from his home in Kenya. Huge thanks also to Bobby's fellow Hall of Fame member Ray Montgomery for setting up the interview. Kelly Histories is a not-for-profit project made for the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association. For more, take a look at killyhistories.com. Don't forget to follow on Facebook and Twitter, at Kelly Histories. And please do leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll also find Kelly Histories in the new Kelly magazine as a monthly feature. For a second season, I'm hugely grateful to the Kelly Trust for their sponsorship, which covers all production costs. To find out more about the Trust and their work with Kilmarnock FC, visit thekillytrust.com. The theme music, Clear Progress, by scottholmesmusic.com, is used under free Creative Commons licence. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time.